0: Well, it remains one of the world's most enduring and recognizable mistakes ever made. The error occurred on August 9th in the year 1173. One miscalculation would become architecture's most notorious blunder. Located in the Italian town of Pisa, The 196-foot tower was uh, meant to be a tourist attraction so that people would flock to come and see this immense tower in the little town of Pisa. And in that sense, it was a huge success, but not for the reason that the architects thought. Um, To this day, 850 years later, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is the most photographed structure in all of Italy and attracts five million visitors a year to see this monument to a mistake see when the foundation was laid uh, it it straddled some soil that was softer on the one side than it was on the other side and this caused a slight uh, variation that was undetectable at first 3.97 degrees and uh, They built it up to the third level, still not quite realizing what was going on, and then war broke out. And so after they got to the third story, they stopped working on it for over a century. So during that time, during that hundred years, the tower settled and compacted that soft soil so that it actually became a very good and solid foundation, but the mistake had already been made. So when they started building again, they realized what happened, and they figured, well, rather than tear down the three stories that had been built 100 years earlier, what they'll do is they'll just um, use stones that are slightly larger on the one side than on the other side, and they'll try to rectify it as they go up. That didn't work. Um, That 3.97 degrees had made a drastic and irreversible effect. Eventually, the top of the tower would end up 12 feet away from where it should be. The original architect is still unknown to this day. Many thought it was Bonanno Pisano, but he never admitted to it himself. Others thought that it was Dioti Salvi, uh, although Salvi always left a uh, signature on all of the buildings that he built. and this one, there was no signature, for obvious reasons. Uh, nobody claimed credit for the Tower of Pisa. And that testifies that even the smallest mistake made early on, leading to this little four-degree angle, can result in a monument of shame and regret. The same, of course, can be said about theology. You build your faith and your theology on what you know to be true, and if what you know to be true is just a little bit off in the beginning, it can lead to a monument an eternity, really, of shame and regret. And this is what we see in First Peter. So turn your Bibles to First Peter chapter 2. As we been going through the section, Peter is writing to these uh, disciples of Christ that have been scattered all over because of persecution. This letter is being passed from church to church in these different regions, reminding them to keep calm and carry on. God is not angry with them. This persecution that is coming is not because of anything that they've done wrong. It is all part of God's foreordained plan In order to reach the nations and also to make them more like Christ. And so this letter is just how to do the next right thing. Don't panic. God is on your side. If indeed you are in Christ. Last week we saw uh, what it means to be a a Lego brick in the, the bigger system, the universal system of the universal church. Each of us are little individual bricks, but a brick on its own is pretty useless until it gets plugged into a larger structure. And so you are plugged into the universal body of Christ by being plugged into a local church. And that's what we looked at last week and what our place is in the universal and the local church. And that brings us to verse 4. So let's pick it up in chapter 2, verse... Well, I'll take it from verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's our section for this morning. We're going to look at three factors to consider when laying a foundation for your faith. I think one of the most terrifying things that we could imagine is that you appear on judgment day confident in your salvation, confident in your religion, confident that you're going to be saved and finding out that you've actually built your entire faith on the wrong foundation. There will be many in that camp on that day, many people experiencing that, and we want to make sure we're not those people. And so we're going to look at three factors to consider when laying a foundation for your faith. Firstly, the cornerstone of belief, then the confidence of believers, and then the consequence of unbelievers. So, Firstly, the cornerstone of belief we see in verse 6. For it stands in scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, first things first, we have to figure out what what is a cornerstone. Maybe you're quite familiar with this concept. Uh, Maybe you've heard sermons on it before. Uh, Some people talk about that keystone or the capstone uh, that's in the middle of an arch, that if you remove it, the arch falls down. But that doesn't really make sense because later on, he's going to talk about tripping over this stone. So what is a cornerstone? Um, Well, there's a hint in the opening formula, verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. Uh, Peter is quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28. It's the passage I read earlier today. Um, Paul also quotes this, by the way, in Romans 9, And it says in Isaiah 28:16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. Uh, What's interesting is that Peter actually changes the wording of the quote. He doesn't get the quote spot on, and neither does Paul. And a lot of people sort of, they get kind of antsy about that. Did, Did Peter not know his Bible that well? Was he misquoting Isaiah and Paul as well? So one of the things when you're interpreting Scripture and you're looking at how the New Testament uses the Old Testament, there's one presupposition I I want you to always have when you're reading anything written by someone in the Bible. These people knew what they were doing. They weren't making mistakes. We know, as I've taught in previous sermons, that the Bible was inspired by God. The Holy Spirit breathe out the Bible. That's why it's inerrant. It doesn't have mistakes. The, the people that God used were born along by the Spirit to produce this. And so come to it with the presupposition that they know what they're doing, that these are intelligent people that have a strategy with the way they're quoting and the way they're using the Old Testament. Or um, as they say in Boston, I just found out, my boy is wicked smart. <laughs> That's how you have to view every prophet, every writer. These people are wicked smart, okay? They are clever. They know what they're doing. So Peter's not making a mistake, and neither is Paul, when they change the wording here because they're emphasizing something very specific. Isaiah was writing to Ephraim and the leaders of Jerusalem, um, bringing judgment upon them, declaring that judgment was going to come, and that they have rejected the cornerstone. Isaiah may have been referring to um, King David that had been uh, direct rejected in the past by some. And uh, we know that in Psalm 118, um, which he quotes a little later on as the rock of events, that's definitely the context talking about David. So what Peter wants to do is draw attention to, it's not what you did with the Davidic dynasty, but with the specific son of David. This is the mistake that you have made. So what is this cornerstone that's spoken of in Isaiah, that's spoken of here again? Well, Let's start with the word Zion, because he says, um, uh, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. A stone, a tested stone. So Zion is uh, what we call a metonym. A metonym is a figure of speech. We use it all the time in English as well, where uh, one smaller thing represents something bigger. So for example, we often talk about in the news, you'll say, the White House has released a statement. Well, the, the White House is the, the building that represents the government. So this is the, the view of the White House means this is the representation of the entire administration of the government, right? Um, or the Kremlin represents the government of Russia, right? And so here you've got Zion, which is a place, a mountain in Israel. It's the hill on which the temple was built. So when he says Zion, it is a metonym for the entire administration of God's kingdom. So God's kingdom is Zion. That, you, you know, Jews at the moment, Jews who believe in um, bringing in a, a Jewish homeland, they're often called Zionists. So this is what it's referring to, that this is a God's mountain, which represents his kingdom. And he says on this foundation, it, it's this cornerstone is what, causes it. Now this is a common image in building. A cornerstone is so once you've decided, let's say you're going to build a, a building this size, this church and you, you, you position it, um, what they would do is they would get one stone and they would angle it the way they want the rest of the building to go and they would make sure that it's perfectly level and that's the way they want and then that's, that's the cornerstone. And then you build along the, those lines up down everything as long as it's perfectly at a right angle that's going to be your building now imagine after you did that you walk away and some guy kind of kicks it and it, it moves by let's say 3.97 degrees no one's going to notice that that little mistake that little change but once you've built an entire building the whole building is going to be off and if it's a 196 foot building it's going to be off by 12 feet right like the leading tower of pieces. So that's what he's saying is that these people, God has laid this, this cornerstone that you can build your faith on so that you can have confidence on judgment day. But if you, if you pick the wrong stone, you think this is the cornerstone when actually it's that one. This one isn't positioned rightly. It's going to affect everything about your faith. So when God says, I'm laying a in Zion, a cornerstone, he says, I'm setting up the lines by which my kingdom will be built and by which you will be judged. If you get these lines wrong, everything's wrong. He, in, in Isaiah, he spoke about the plumb line of righteousness and justice. Picture lines on a grid, on a blueprint, and the plumb line, of course, is the, the perpendicular angle. And so all of this He's telling you, this is what righteousness is. This is what justice is. This is the person on whom your entire faith needs to be built. If you pick the wrong one, it doesn't matter how good your religion is. It's the wrong religion. You can be sincere and yet sincerely wrong. And so you need to be careful. It's like writing an essay. As I've been preparing for my exams, I heard this horror story about a student who wrote an essay they give you like two hours. You have to write like a 5,000 word essay from memory. And he had read the question wrong when he prepared the essay. And so the, the question was something like um, give an overview of recent trends in New Testament studies. But he had prepared an essay for give an overview of the New Testament. And so when he got the exam, he just saw the words overview, New Testament. Yep, that's the one I prepared. And he wrote a whole essay on, you know, the Gospels and then the Epistles and Revelation and the whole overview of the New Testament. 5,000 words took him two hours and he got zero because he didn't mention any of the New Testament trends, the overview of the New Testament, the trends in New Testament studies, like, you know, the view of deponency or the authorships of the various books or those types of things. So you don't want to make a mistake in the beginning and you're very sincere and you're very knowledgeable and you have this this religion and it's really good. It's just answering the wrong question. You got to get your cornerstone right up front. To make a mistake with Jesus affects your whole eternity. That's why verse 6 says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. The cornerstone of God's kingdom is Jesus Christ. The Father sends him. I am laying in Zion a stone. You know, what's interesting is Peter uses a different word there from the original quotation as well. The original quotation is just kind of, I'm putting this stone there. This is a word that means I'm appointing the stone. it, it, It emphasizes God's initiative In setting up the structure. So the father sends Jesus Christ. The father chooses Jesus Christ. He calls him the cornerstone chosen. Chosen by God. And the father values Jesus Christ. He's the precious one. And we looked at that last week as well. Where the the voice at Jesus' baptism. The voice of the father said. This is my son. In whom I am well pleased. It doesn't matter what Pilate thinks about Jesus or what Judas thinks about Jesus or what the unbelieving Jews who called for his crucifixion believe about him. It only matters what God the Father thinks about him, and God the Father values him. And so he is appointed, he is chosen, he is precious, and therefore for a human being to reject Jesus Christ is to reject the Father. There is no such thing as saying there are many different ways to God. There's the Muslim way, there's the Buddhist way, there's the Christian way. And as long as you believe what you believe and you're sincere and you do the best that you can, God will take that into account because there are many different paths. No, that is the opposite of what God has revealed to mankind. That is something that Satan wants people to believe so that they can pick and choose whichever religion they want that they're comfortable with, that suits them and their lifestyle. And God says, no, this is the cornerstone. These are the lines. This is the plumb line. I'll tell you what justice is. I'll tell you what righteousness is. And I will tell you that your faith needs to be based on Jesus Christ. And if you reject him, you reject me. And yet there will be countless people who die and wake up in the presence of their maker feeling perfectly confident that they have stuck to their religion their entire lives and find out it was the wrong one. You had a good answer to the wrong question. No other standard counts. No other lines work, except for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. What God has said needs to be done, that righteousness, someone needs to do it. Someone needs to accomplish it. And then he said, for I tell you, unless your righteous deeds, your righteousness, exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying that Everything that God said the standard is in the law, every jot and tittle of which needs to be accomplished by someone, and you all think that the people accomplishing it are the Pharisees and the scribes because these were the ones who made a, an absolute obsession out of keeping every last little law and every little jot and tittle. These are the ones that Jesus describes as tithing their mint and their cumin. You know, they tithe their spice rack when they give. I mean, these guys are down to the minutia. And the, Jew, the normal everyday Jew is just like, man, I'm, I'm glad they got that sacrificial system going because I can't live up to that righteousness. There's no way I could be a Pharisee. And then Jesus comes along and says, they're not even close. You think it's hard to be like them? They're not even doing it right. You need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So they got their standards wrong. They're they picking the wrong cornerstone to build their, their idea of righteousness on. People today say it this way. Well, I'm a good person. Okay, that's good. It's better than being a bad person. Um, who are you good compared to? I mean, what are you comparing yourself to? Good compared to what? I mean, definitely we're all good compared to Hitler. I mean, I haven't killed 6 million people, have you? you know? So there's one thing oh, well, I don't kill, I don't steal, I don't cheat, I'm a good person. Okay, but the Pharisees were good people. They didn't kill and cheat and steal. And Jesus says, your righteousness needs to still exceed that. that that's not enough. You know, um, you need to make sure that the standard that you're choosing to measure yourself on is the one that God's going to measure you on. Otherwise, you you think everything's straight, but it's not. So Tom and I were once, um, we were hanging a television set. And by Tom and I, I mean Tom was hanging a television set, and I was watching and learning. And, uh, and if you had asked me to do it, I would have just used a level. You know, we call them a, a spirit level in South Africa because it's got that little bubble. And you get the... But Tom taught me that the spurt level only works and only looks straight if the whole house is straight. Because if your, if your roof is a cup, you know, if your ceiling is, is angling and you don't notice that with your eye, once you put a perfectly straight television next to the ceiling, now, now it looks crooked. So sometimes you're, what you're doing is straight, but the whole house is crooked. And that happens. The, w- the wall is wrong. The, the, the boulder didn't do it right. So you need to kind of take a step back and not only think, well, I'm doing everything that the is telling me to do. You need to step back and say, have I got the right pastor? You do. Um, <laughs> but you, you are responsible for that. You, you can't say, well, I'm, I'm doing everything that the... How the Baptists say we should do it? Well, are you sure the Baptists are right? Or you, you can't just say, well, I'm doing what my little system tells me to do. You've got to take a step back and say, what if your whole system is crooked? Then it doesn't matter how you align yourself to it, you're still wrong. And so if, Jesus, if what Jesus says doesn't line up with what you've been taught, you need to jettison what you've been taught. And line up your life with what Jesus says. That's what Peter's telling these Christians and telling us. If you measure yourself against random stones on the pile, like other people that are worse than you, you're going to give yourself a sense of false assurance. Never ever think to yourself, I'm not as bad as that other person. I mean, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect, but at least, I mean, at least I'm going to church. At least I'm giving you the ministry. I pray, I read my Bible, I'm faithful to my spouse, I'm good enough. I mean, these other friends of mine, man, they're, you know, they're committing adultery, they're, you know, cheating on their taxes, they're getting drunk on the weekend. I mean, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not that what you're doing is you're, you're building your confidence on random stones that you're picking. Whereas the cornerstone is a stone of absolute perfection, perfect righteousness. That's who you have to measure yourself against. So that's the cornerstone of our belief. Make sure we have the right cornerstone. The right cornerstone is Jesus. Your application, your homework is, go learn about Jesus. Read about him in scripture. Meditate on What it is that he did what he claimed, who he said he was, what he was able to prove. He is the cornerstone of our belief. Do not fall into the temptation of thinking that if Jehovah's Witnesses get a little bit wrong about Jesus or Mormons get a little bit wrong about Jesus, at least Jesus is in the mix. No, you need the Jesus in the Bible as he revealed himself. Not as human beings came up with a way of describing him. And then you build your faith on him. So that's the cornerstone of belief. Secondly, another factor you need to take into account is the confidence of believers. What what do we have our confidence in? Okay, let's say, so Jesus is right. We agree that, but but now what? Verse six goes on to say, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Here it is. Whoever believes in him Will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him. You know, last week we looked at you need to come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus. You need to believe in him. Now this can be confusing because those of you who know my testimony know I I got saved, became a Christian. Um, when I was 20 years old, I was in college, but I had grown up in a family that took me to church, heard the Bible, I went to a Catholic church, and I often heard this, you need to believe in Jesus. And if you had asked me, do you believe in Jesus? I would have said, absolutely, I believe in Jesus. If you had asked me, what does that mean? I would not have been able to give you a clear answer. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? I mean, if I said to you, do you believe in the Easter bunny? What, is it, what does that mean? Do you believe the Easter bunny exists? No, I don't believe in the Easter bunny. Okay, what about those of you who do believe in the Easter bunny? <laughs> there may be some of you. Okay. But what does that mean? Just that you believe the person exists? If I say to you, do, do you believe... In the moon landing, you know, there are people who say that the moon landing was staged as part of the space race uh, against the Soviets, and it wasn't really real. It's a big conspiracy theory out there that the moon landing wasn't real. It's actually pretty convincing when you look at it, but it did did happen. It did happen. But there are people out there who say that the moon landing didn't happen. So if I say to you, do you believe in the moon landing, and you say, yes, what are you saying? I believe that it happened. It happened. So a lot of people think, when I say, do you believe in Jesus, all I'm asking is, do you believe it happened? That there was this man, he was born of a virgin, and he claimed to be God, and he could walk on water, and he did miracles, and he died on the cross, and he rose on the third day. Do you believe that happened? And you're like, I believe that happened, so I believe in Jesus. The problem with that is, that the book of James tells us, who else believes that? Demons believe that. The Pharisees who heard from the Roman soldiers that Jesus' body had been, you know, they lost the body. They were they were guarding the tomb, and, and they told him, These angels came, we felt like dead men, the body was gone. They knew it happened. They knew there was this man and what he claimed, and they saw his signs. Nobody ever said that his signs were faked. They saw his miracles. They saw him die on the cross. They had the testimony of the Roman soldiers that he was alive, but they didn't believe in him. So believing that something happened isn't what Peter's saying about, isn't what Peter's talking about. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's why I could be unsaved before the age of 20 and say, I believe in Jesus. And my fear is that there's people here today who think that they're saved because they can say, I believe in Jesus. And all they mean is, I believe the stuff in the Bible happened. But that's not what that means. A better way to phrase it is, I trust in Jesus. You know, there's there's a difference to that. To say I believe in him is right if what you mean is I trust in him. See, I believe in the moon landing, but I'm not staking my soul on it. I'm I'm not making any decisions based on whether it happened. But when you trust in it, that means you're now, you got some skin in the game. You're saying, I'm entrusting my soul to this person and all the things that he claimed and all the things that he did. Peter says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you ever have doubts? I think if we're honest and we think carefully, look at our souls, would say, I, I, I think everybody has doubts at some point. Do you ever wonder, what if this whole Christianity thing is not true? I mean, there's millions of people, they believe in stuff that's not true. What if I'm one of the people that believes in something that's not true? What if if it just didn't happen? What if the resurrection isn't true? What if there's a different way that's the right way? What if we just die, and then when we die, there's like nothing. There's just oblivion. There's no afterlife. There's no heaven or hell it's just annihilation just you just disappear well, what if that's what happens these are good questions you're asking what you're really asking is how do we know and the issue is i can't give you proof You don't know, you believe, you trust, you make a decision. Everyone in the world makes this decision, whether they do it consciously or not. Everyone believes something. Even the person who says, I don't like to think about it, I don't know what happens, I don't care what happens, I'm just going to live my life for now. That is a decision that they have made based on a belief system that they have. At the very least, they're saying, well, what the Bible says about hell isn't true. (laughs) I definitely know that because I'm I'm just choosing not to even think about that. Everybody makes a decision based on faith. Nobody has proof. So the only question is, what are you going to put your faith in? I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going all in on Jesus Christ. I don't have any backup plan. If Jesus lied, I'm doomed. Why do I believe him? I don't know. I don't know why I believe him. I mean, I know from scripture why I believe him because he called me and he gave me the faith and he drew me and he quickened me through his spirit, etc. But just from a human point of view, I'm believing in him. I'm trusting in him. He's my only hope. If I get this wrong, I've got no backup plan. There's no way to hedge your bets with this. This is what, what Peter means when if you believe in him, But here is the promise. If those who believe in him will not be put to shame. You're not going to regret it. It'll be worth it. You know, what I could do is I could go into the many evidences that the Bible is true. I've studied this. I've taken classes on this. I've read books. It's very convincing when you start to study the history of the manuscripts of the Bible. When you look at the archaeology, one of my whole exams I'm preparing is all about the archaeology that proves the Bible is true. It's very convincing. And I could teach you that, and we, we, we might even do that, have an equipping hour where I'll teach you the archaeology just because, you know, I, I'll get to put on an Indiana Jones hat and it'll be fun. But I'm not asking you to believe in Jesus because of archaeology. Because then I'm asking you to put your faith in archaeology. Or put your faith in logical arguments. Persuasiveness. I could prove from history and testimony of people. I could show you rational arguments. I could show you scientific arguments. But then I'm asking you to believe in arguments and their persuasiveness, to believe in history and its reliability, to believe in evidence and its interpretation, to believe in testimony and the emotion of that testimony. Finite reason. You're trusting in your intelligence. There's always something you have to trust in. But our salvation doesn't depend on persuasiveness, reliability, interpretation, emotional intelligence. Our salvation depends on Jesus. That's the only factor. And Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Second Timothy 1. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. Not I know what I have believed. I know whom I have believed. It's a person. Jesus is not asking you to trust in the doctrine of election. Jesus is not asking you to trust in the correct view of the charismatic gifts. Jesus is saying, you need to trust in me. In one sense, it's a lot easier to be saved than some people make it out to be. You don't need a theology degree to be saved. Children can be saved. Do you trust in Jesus? And when we ask you, like in a membership interview or something like that, to give us your testimony, that's all we're listening for. We're not listening for, well, how you came to know reform doctrines and how many of the five points of Calvinism you can put, you know, we're not asking, all we want to hear is, are you trusting in Jesus? And different people say that in different ways. Yeah, I was, I was feeling really guilty and I, I knew what, I was a bad person and I didn't know what to do about it. And then I, I just went to Jesus and asked him to forgive me. And, and now I have this joy. Great, that's the testimony. That's how you get saved. I, the whole point of I came to Jesus and made it his problem. That's what saves you. <laughs> As soon as you're like, well, I did this good thing, and I'm, I've got this track record of this, and I, you know, I served, and I was in the band, and I was a deacon, and I'm, I was a pastor. You know, I went to seminary. You're putting your faith in the wrong things. The right answer is, I was bad. I made it Jesus' problem. I'm going to heaven. And yes, of course, you need to know the right Jesus and the fact that he lived a perfect life and died on the cross as your substitute, that he conquered the grave. But lots of people believe that and aren't saved. Trusting in him means he's my everything. He's my parachute when I fall out of the plane. I don't have any other backup. And is it a risky bet? Yes, it is. I mean, let's not mess around you. I'm asking you to put your faith in something that if it's wrong, we're all doomed. But everybody has to, everybody has to put their faith in something. And the promise of Scripture is that if you choose Jesus Christ as that cornerstone, you will not be put to shame. And so when Peter changes the wording, if you remember earlier in the service when I read Isaiah uh, 28, 16, Isaiah says, will not be in haste. Um, The LSB translates, the Legacy Standard Bible, translate that as, uh, will not be disturbed. And there's a footnote that says, uh, in a hurry. It's kind of a strange thing for Isaiah to say. So what Peter says is, don't worry about interpreting that. I'm going to interpret it for you under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You will not be put to shame. You won't be disturbed. You won't be frantic on Judgment Day. You won't be rushing around in that last minute What's the right answer? What's the right answer? You'll be fine. If you trust in Jesus. He's our confidence. So the third factor, we looked at uh, the cornerstone of belief, Jesus Christ. The confidence of believers is you actually have to trust in him and him alone for your salvation. And the third factor is the consequence of unbelief. Now there's good news and bad news. The, The bad news is we only have like three minutes left. The good news is we've got a whole sermon on that point next week. But I wanted to just mention to you what this this is here. The consequence of unbelief. So verse 7 says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, here's your two choices, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become, or has turned out to be, the cornerstone. And... Another quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So here Peter tells us, put your faith in Jesus. That's the confidence of believers. So you pick Jesus. He's the cornerstone. You put your faith in him. You trust in him to save you and him alone, not your own good works. Okay, so that, but now he's, He's moving to the warning part of his message, of his argument. And he's saying that if you try to choose another way, Jesus is not just going to say, okay, well, I agree to disagree, but come on in anyway. Jesus is not going to say, okay, well, you missed the fact that I was the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You missed that part. But you were really, really good at what you were trying. So we're just going to let you in. Peter's warning you, if you get this wrong... Then this cornerstone becomes the stone that crushes you. Every human being finds himself between a rock and a hard place. You either put your faith in Jesus Christ, the rock of your salvation, or you get crushed by that rock. There's nothing in between. If you ignore the cornerstone, he becomes a stumbling block, an obstacle. To your salvation. So Jesus is the only way to be saved. But if you reject him. He becomes the obstacle. For you to get saved. You have to deal with him. You have to come through him. And if people get offended by the Jesus part of things. They cannot be saved. You see this with Paul in. In. uh, Uh, what's it, Acts 17 on Mars Hill, and he's busy preaching to the philosophers, and they're just lapping it up. They're lapping it up. Everything's fine. And then right at the end, he says, and God is going to judge the world by this one man whom he raised from the dead. And the whole thing explodes. Ah, No, 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 no. We reject that part. We love the other stuff where you were quoting our poets. Not this part about this guy Jesus Christ who raised from the dead. No, 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 no. And some of them scoffed. Some of them were like, I got to think about this. But some of them believed. And they joined the early church. That's your choice. You either scoff and you're rejected or you believe. Now, why? Why do some people reject? And this is what next week's going to be focused on. But let me just give it to you in verse 8. They stumble. Why? Why do they stumble? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That's why people aren't Christians. Because they disobey the word and they were destined to do so. It's their choice and it's their destiny. That's a very, very complicated thing I just said. People go to hell because it's their choice some people like to use the word free will. And it's their destiny. Predestination. Two reasons. Their choice and their destiny. The reason they reject Jesus' as salvation is because they reject his lordship. They don't want to obey him. They don't want to give up their sexual preference. The way they spend their money, the way they spend their time, what they believe about this or about that. They don't want to give that up. They disobey him. They don't want him as their lord. They choose independence. They ignore Christ's authority that he has over how they live. But the other reason introduces us to one of the deepest mysteries in Scripture. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They choose to disobey because they were destined to disobey. Destiny means decided beforehand. Now, I can already hear you asking these questions. How can a person make a choice if it's also their destiny to make that choice? How can that be a free choice? How can a person how can it be a person's fault for making that choice when it was their destiny to make that choice? Decided beforehand? Is there a better way to understand the word destiny, maybe? What does the rest of the Bible say about destiny? Answering those questions and dealing with this issue of destiny is like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube in the dark, underwater, with mittens on. It. <laughs> but we're going to take a stab at it next week. So come back next week. For now, you need to know this you need to deal with Jesus Christ. Don't make the mistake that will cause an eternity of regret and embarrassment and shame. Don't build a tower of your faith on soft ground. Build it on the rock that is Jesus Christ. As we will sing in a moment, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so moved when we read of this challenge, this warning, this invitation from the Apostle Peter. What a blessing it is to know that no matter how wretched we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how entrenched we are in sin, we can be saved. We can be forgiven because of the mercy and the love that is found in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And yet, Father, I do pray for those, maybe even among us who are listening to this online or have access to this gospel. We just pray for those that reject Jesus Christ and are hedging their bets and maybe believe in Him, but also in other methods, in their own good works, in their own track record. I pray that you, in your spirit, would... Convict them of their sin and draw them to the Savior to realize that He is the only rock on which we stand. That all other ground, even our own good works and efforts and merits, other religions, all of that is sinking sand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.